Welcome. Saturday afternoon. It is uh, three minutes after one o'clock. Thanks for joining us. It's uh, John Scholes here, your host, along with James Fireman, Tamar Ogobian, both from San Fierro, Tamar and LLP. You can reach out now. In fact, uh, last week we had a good show. A lot of you guys uh, called in and had some questions and comments. Let's keep that. Uh, let's keep that vibe happening. How do you do it? 416-872-1010 to call into the station now live and, and ask your questions. Don't be bashful that, or you can text 71010 as well. And we always get to a ton of emails. That would be help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, I think right off the top, uh, after we get to a couple of weeks, there was uh, things from James and Tamar. You can also use mydisabilityquestions.com. I already see one standing by. We'll, uh, we'll read that question out and get to it. But guys, first, as I just mentioned, we always start out with some sort of week that was or something that's going on. James, what do you got, Bill? Well, I got a couple things I want to talk about. Cool. Um, because we are blessed to have snow on the ground, I'm trying to be optimistic here and <laughs> glass half full and such things. Big but time. when that does happen, it always reminds me that it is a good time to discuss what happens in such weather if you happen to slip and fall. Because in addition to doing disability law, we also do some personal injury work. And this is obviously something that comes up when the weather gets colder. So this is really more as a friendly reminder, if you are out there and you happen to have a slip and fall accident on snow or ice, please, 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 obviously tend to your injuries first and foremost, but it is also very important that you document what has happened. And virtually every single person at this point has a, very good camera on them at all times. And if you don't happen to, I can assure you that the first person you see is going to. So make sure that you get photographs of the area if you do happen to slip and fall, because those can be very important to establish whether or not there was proper maintenance done. Of course, you know, there are situations where you might happen to slip and fall, even though there was proper maintenance. And in that case, there wouldn't be any recourse for you, but if there wasn't proper maintenance, if there's a big patch of ice, they haven't salted properly as required, then that can be very, very useful down the road if you do need to pursue a legal remedy for your slip and fall. The other thing that I really like to make sure people understand is that if you do happen to have a slip and fall accident on public property, it is really important that you provide notice to the city within 10 days, whatever municipality you live in, whether it's Toronto or if it's one of the surrounding municipalities, you need to go to the uh, the uh, city clerk. So usually you can find them at city hall. In the past, you'd actually have to go down and visit, but you no longer have to do that. You can almost always go online and find the city clerk of whatever municipality you're in. And there's typically going to be an online form that you would fill out that would indicate when and specifically where you had your accident. You want to be as precise as possible. And you would indicate your name, your contact information, and the injuries that you suffered. Doing that doesn't mean that you're going to pursue a legal remedy. All it means is that if down the road you should need to do that, if your injuries are significant enough that you need to eventually bring a lawsuit, this will allow you to do that. If you haven't done that, and the law says you really only have 10 days to do that if it's on municipal property, if you haven't done it within those 10 days, then the law says you're not allowed to. Now, there are situations where you can get around that. So if it has been more than 10 days, you still should do it as soon as possible, but it can be more difficult. So please take photographs and please make sure that if it's on municipal property that you 
give a notice to the city clerk of whatever municipality you happen to be in. So that is my public service announcement as it relates to slip and falls. Moving on, uh, Hmm. disability law, and this is really the focus of our show, of course, but if you do have a personal injury question, by all means, feel free to call in. On the topic of disability law, there is an issue that comes up, and it's not really something that we talk about all that often, but it is there in the background on a lot of our cases. And so this is where there is something of a gap between what is in the medical records and what the person is actually experiencing. Now, if there's a gap, that doesn't necessarily mean that what the person is experiencing isn't legitimate and isn't disabling them from work. But you also have to think about what the purpose is of the medical records, why your treating doctors are making those records and putting the information they choose to put in to those records. They are not typically looking at the records from a disability insurance standpoint. That's just not what their job is. That's not what their training is. Now, some doctors are better than others and are aware that their patients are within the disability law system and what can be helpful and will be attentive to that. But most aren't. And I don't fault them for that because it's really not part of their job description. It's something that if they do, it's because they've learned and they're very good at their job and they understand those issues. But many don't. What they do is they are just making sure that you're getting proper treatment and proper care and are not turning their mind to whether or not your particular medical problems are preventing you or restricting you from being able to work specifically. It's just not the issue that they are typically focusing in on unless and until somebody really forces them to do that or politely asks them to do that. And so we are often in a situation where somebody has a legitimate medical disability, but their doctors haven't really turned their attention to the impact that has on their ability to work. And so that information is absent from the medical file. And because it's absent, invariably, insurers are going to say, well, no one's saying that you can't go to work. And so because of that, obviously, that must mean that you can. In other words, the absence of a noted restriction is going to be interpreted by the insurance company as proof that you are capable, which is certainly not the case. So what do we do when that's the case? Well, there's a few things that can be done. One and probably the simplest way when it's when it's feasible is to, where possible, contact the treating doctor and have them have them address that as specifically as possible. So if you're if the treating doctor is able to provide you know one page or two that direct that is directed towards the issue of disability insurance and your ability to return to work, then that is certainly one possible way to do it. Another way is if we're not able to get that from the treating doctors for whatever reason, we can, in certain cases, hire a medical expert to have you assessed and to provide their opinions specifically on the issues that are relevant when we're talking about disability law. And most importantly, your ability to actually be able to work, your prognosis, how likely you are to be able to return to work in the future. One other thing that I like to do, and this is something that I've started doing a little bit more frequently, is I like to have the, if there's a spouse, I like to have the spouse in certain situations at a mediation, give a one or two minute uh, 
one or two minute talk just about how the injuries of their spouse has impacted their relationship and what they see on a day-to-day basis. I don't ask them to talk about their ability to work. That's not really what they're there to do and what they can speak on. But I do want them to provide the human side so that the insurance company at the mediation can get a much better understanding of the day-to-day impact on the life of their insurer that they are denying that may not be visible just by reading some medical records. And I find doing that can have a really tremendous impact. So those are things that can be done when you're in a situation where the insurer is saying, well, I don't see it there. There are things that we can do to address that. I'm curious tomorrow because I have no doubt that this is something that comes up in your practice as well. For sure. What do you do in those situations? Well, similar strategies, of course. And I think that (laughs) sometimes what's missing is that a claimant will actually go to different treatment providers and those that patterning of seeing different treatment providers in that period of time that the insurer is looking for establishing that, you know, test or evidence of total disability, sometimes they don't have the full picture. So for example, I was actually doing a couple hours of work this morning and was reviewing a claims file for a client. And in that claims file, what became really clear was that uh, my client had seen not only a family doctor, but also a psychologist and a psychiatrist for her mental health conditions at the outset of her disability claim. Uh, I'll spare, spare you with all the details, but I've counted already now three appeals, by the way, folks. Oh, yeah. um, anyway, so so in but but why? And so James highlights a really important point, and and the reasoning. I mean, it was a shifting, moving target from the insurer's perspective. But one of the issues was, look, we just don't have all the information here, and you know, it's this idea of look how. How can we facilitate getting all of that information to the insurer? Because it's not necessarily all going to be in the family doctor's records. It could be that there are treatment providers that are not going to update the family doctor. And so if the family doctor is doing one thing and there's other treatment providers doing other things like psych, like phys- physiotherapists or a chiropractor or other, other treatment providers that are not strictly necessarily MDs, then I want to make sure right out of the gates that I clearly understand that if my client has seen even someone once for one consult, I want to be able to obtain those records because I think that it tells an important story. So when it comes to the time where we are advocating for our clients, and typically that setting is a mediation, we want to have that complete story. Because let's not forget If it does go to trial, it won't. But if it does, the judge is going to see everything. And I think it'll make it that much harder for the disability insurer to stand up and say, we are still maintaining in the face of all this information that this person has not met the test of total disability. And so look, it is a partnership with our clients. It's certainly um, some work that we do to help support, you know, getting those records and, and chasing that stuff down. But we're happy to do it because because we know the end result is going to be uh, getting some great compensation for our clients. Opening start, guys. Fantastic. I know, James, you got another matter to cover before we move on to some emails and other questions. This will give you a time as you listen in for the remainder of the hour to grab a phone if you wish, ask some questions. If something's come up in your mind, do not hesitate. We're live. We're good to go. 416 872 1010 and 71010 to text as well. We'll continue right here at Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
It is 120. Welcome back. And we are uh, glad to have you along. James Fireman here. Tamara Gopian as well, doing all the heavy lifting. The, the brain power is on the show. Join us. Be that fourth voice. Come on. 416-872-1010 is the number to call into the program for the remainder of the hour. You have the option of an email, which is help at disability rights. Or I mentioned another website called mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a beauty because it's free. It's anonymous, of course. You can search for a uh, past question that is similar to yours, so it'll save you a bit of time. If not, leave it there, type it in, and uh, one of the team will get to it for sure. Tamara, first one, I'm lobbing over the net to you, pal, says, uh, I've been receiving LTD payments for just under two years. I was recently informed by my insurance provider that my file has been transferred to the long duration team because they deem that my health condition prevents me from working at any occupation and that I will likely continue receiving LTD payments until age 65, which is great. My specific question is, can I take a brief, brief trip abroad to visit family? My doctor, perfectly okay, perfectly okay with it. I've read over everything I've got from the insurance company. I've found nothing that says anything about vacation or travel. Uh, I may be paranoid, but I don't want to ask my disability case manager about this because I feel I might be opening the door to unnecessary and unwanted examination. Am I wrong in thinking that no mention of travel restrictions in my LTD policy is sufficient for me to proceed worry-free with a short trip abroad for the purpose of visiting family? I mean, look, I think generally speaking, your policy reigns supreme. So I'm glad to hear a couple of things in this question. Number one, the fact that, you know, this individual has been put on long duration. Let's start there. That term is specific to one insurer that comes to mind that has a warm and dear place in my heart. <laughs> Not, um, but, but other insurers have similar uh, language. And what that means is essentially they're going to be really only looking for you know, an update every six months to a year, making sure you're still kicking, making sure that it's still more of the same disability status remains the same, perhaps a quick medical update from your doctor. And that's that. So the idea is that is there isn't going to be that same level of active adjudication with your disability claim when you've been placed in a zone like long duration. And certainly that there's that confirmation that benefits are continuing beyond that initial change of definition. All good things. The other element, though, and the real question here is, do you have the freedom to do other things, even though you know that you're going to be on this long duration and you're not going to have that same level of scrutiny from the disability insurer? And as I said from the start, I think you do want to take a critical review of your disability policy. Some of them say if you have been out of the country or certain the place of residence, for example, for a certain period of time, and it could be weeks, it could be months, usually it's months, then you may be compromising actually continued entitlement to long-term disability benefits. The policy will say, if you're out of the country for three months, you're not entitled to benefits for that period of time. Now, that's not what this question is describing, though. I don't think that it's that prolonged a trip. It just seems like it's going to be a relatively short jaunt and certainly something that's endorsed by the doctors, which is why I'm hedging a little bit, because I think that there is a lot of value in individuals continuing to to have some measure of support from family and friends, and sometimes taking a trip somewhere to do that in order to have that um, relationship and have that sort of break, I suppose, can be very valuable to someone's mental health, for example. And I think that if it's clearly supported by the doctor, then I'm not really that concerned about the insurer necessarily. Again, the caveat being so long as there's nothing in the policy that's going to say, if you're out of the country for a period of time, 
you're going to compromise your disability benefits. But it is somewhat nuanced. And so I don't want to be giving sort of hard and fast rules that it's okay. Uh, I think generally speaking, it should be okay, but it may be a problem depending on what your policy says. What do you think, James? Well, I, I certainly agree with everything that you've said. I mean, I think you want to be careful for sure that you're not offending the policy, but my overriding position on this is that you need to live your life. You need to be able to go out and do things that are going to make you happy, that are going to be productive for you. And so particularly when you're in a situation where you have treating doctors that are encouraging you to go or are proving you to go or even saying it's part of your therapy, I, I think you absolutely should be. Now, if you don't have a travel restriction in your policy and you want to be really careful that you don't, if you don't have one in there, uh, my advice is typically to get the approval from your doctors and then go. Make sure that you are doing whatever is possible to maintain treatment while you're away. So virtual therapy can be useful. Exercises that you can do on your own uh, are, are, are good techniques as well. So see what can be done in order to maintain your treatment. But I wouldn't go and flag that for them in advance if you don't have a travel restriction and if you have gotten approval from your doctors. If you do have a travel restriction and you're looking to go anywhere outside of that travel restriction, in other words, if it says you're not allowed to go out of the country for more than two weeks without approval, and you're looking to go for more than two weeks, make sure you get the approval. There's just no two ways about it. But this is all a good conversation to have now in advance of going. And that's something that we can always help with. And if you're not sure, you give us a call. We're happy to look at your policy to make sure that there aren't travel restrictions that would prevent you from going. And we can give you advice on your specific situation. The other side of this, of course, is when you're in a situation where you've already gone and that's caused an issue with your insurer, either because they say that you haven't gotten permission or you were outside of the boundaries of the policy, or they say, and I've seen this several times, they say that, well, you know, you weren't restricted from going because of the policy, but the fact that you went means that you're no longer disabled because obviously if you're able to go on the trip, then you're able to work, which is a ridiculous statement. And I've seen insurers do this all the time. I can almost think of no situations with very few exceptions where going on a trip means that you're able to work. The exceptions are if your injury is physical and you know you're saying that you you know can't walk for more than 10 feet and you know they have you know pictures or video of you you know doing um you know wine dancing or, or doing whatever on vacation okay that's a different story but those examples aside if you're just talking about going for a relaxing vacation where you're not doing anything that are outside of your restrictions and limitations and you're simply doing that to recharge get some peace of mind perhaps be with family and friends and it's approved by your doctors, there's no basis for an insurer to take that kind of position. And if they do, that's almost always something that we're gonna be able to help out with. The other thing that I wanna be really clear about is that if you're in that situation and the insurer has said, okay, well, we're cutting you off because you went on this vacation, your policy says that you're not allowed to do that without prior permission, if that does happen to you, the way most policies are worded is that it's not really a case that you, they're entitled to cut off your benefits because of that. 
all it would mean is that for that period where you're on vacation outside of what's required in the policy, they would be entitled to withhold the benefits for that period of time. But they should still be required to continue paying the benefits. Now, I've seen it both ways, but more often than not, it's just a matter of them withholding benefits for that period of time. So be careful and make sure you look at the wording of your policy in advance, as always. Again, guys, uh, calling through any time with the remainder of the hour, 416-872-1010. Lines are open, so you can uh, come on in. The water's warm. Uh, texting 71010 as well. Guys, when it comes to doctors and the uh, the rights, at least the, the stretch and the reach of, of insurers, can the insurance company contact a claimant's doctor directly to get information? Is that something you advise against, or is it, yeah, they can do whatever they want? Well, well I mean, oh, sorry, Tamara. James. No, no, no. You go ahead, please. Let's start on the question at the very least, because I think we're both sort of chomping at the bit to answer this one. Um, here's what I, I'm going to suggest. First and foremost, yes, they can contact your doctors to get information directly from your doctors, but you can't necessarily assume that they will, right? And so the starting point that all insurers like to say is that the proof of total disability lands at the feet of the claimant. So they are going to put the pressure on the claimant to demonstrate total disability, including by providing current up-to-date medical information supporting the claim. So even though when you typically apply for disability benefits, you know, all that small print that you see at the back end of your application, folks, that's the authorization allowing the insurance company to contact your doctor for records. Even though that's there, uh, the fallback position for most insurers is to put it back on you to make sure that you go and seek out that information. So look, there's more to unpack here and let's chat about this a little more after our break. You bet. We'll do that. In the meantime, call us 416-872-1010, text 71010 and back into more emails as well. We'll go back to mydisabilityquestions.com as we roll on here. Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. short break. Thanks for uh, joining us today. If you have any questions of the disability law in nature, maybe you're dealing with a rotten disability insurer. Maybe you've been cut off. Maybe they will put you on claim. Maybe you've been asked to appeal for the billionth time. Don't do that. Call us first right now. Would be a smart plan for yourself or a, a colleague or family member. Call on their behalf. Why don't you? 416-872-1010 to call into the show now. Text 71010 as well and mydisabilityquestions.com. Anytime to uh, reach out in that regard, we'd like to get some of those on the air. And, uh, and we talk about them. We'll get to this one, guys, from mydisabilityquestions.com. says, why do some LTD providers once approved for CPP disability, we all know is a much harder test to pass versus LTD, still keep asking for updates every month, whereas some people, they totally stop bothering. I was fortunate, got approved for CPPD, and it's been over six months, and I haven't heard from the LTD insurer. I still have one year before I hit the any occupation point. So I was surprised they haven't bothered me in such a while. Do other factors, such as if you have a taxable versus non-taxable LTD come into play? I have a non-taxable LTD. What do you think, guys? Well, I don't think the tax status has anything to do with it. I don't think that really matters to the claims handlers at all when they're looking at a file and deciding what type of information they want or how involved they're going to be. I mean, there are some general factors that might influence how much of uh, how much information or how frequently insurers want information so one of the things that this person has pointed out is 
the the timing with respect to the change of definition. And so if you're before the change of definition, while the test is still a disability from your own occupation, they tend to want updates more frequently in those scenarios, all other things being equal, because as the test changes and gets a little bit harder at the change of definition, they want to have more information to try and build a justification for terminating benefits. But the reality is, you know, it's not always a black and white world. There's a lot of gray in there. And in this case, I think the difference between when, you, you know, someone who is asked for updates very frequently versus someone who isn't has probably a lot more to do with the particular claims handler that's assigned to the file. There are some that are going to be very aggressive and others that are going to be much less so. And if you happen to have one that's aggressive, you're likely going to need to give them more updates. And it's as simple as that. It isn't necessarily related to anything specific on your file. And it could well be that if they are not being aggressive now, three months from now, when whoever is handling your file decides that they want to move on to some better job and the next person gets assigned to your case, that the next person is going to be much more aggressive. You never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it really isn't necessarily the case that it is about you know any any one particular factor. Um, the the CPP disability issue is interesting. So for the benefit of our of our listeners, CPP disability, of course, is the the program run by the federal government, where if you have been paying into your Canada pension plan and you become disabled, you can apply for CPP disability, and it can pay you up to fourteen hundred bucks a month. If you get that for almost all disability policies, it's really just going to be an offset against what your insurer pays. So you don't really wind up getting more overall. If you're getting $4,000 a month and your CPP disability is $1,400, now you're getting $1,400 from CPP disability and $2,600 from your insurer. So you don't wind up getting more money in the end. But the test for CPP disability, as this person correctly points out, is more difficult. It's a more onerous test. You need to show a permanent and severe disability, uh, or sorry, a prolonged and severe disability, which is obviously more difficult than the LTD test, which just requires you showing a disability from your own occupation or after two years, any occupation. And so if you have passed that CPP disability test, it does make sense that an insurer would be less aggressive because they know that the government's already said that you pass a more onerous test. And so their position in trying to say that you don't pass the LTV test is weaker, but it doesn't mean that they're going to just accept what the government says as, uh, as the end result or as definitive in terms of the LTD policy. And so they can still be aggressive even if you've been approved for CPP disability. Again, I think it's got much more to do with the adjuster that happens to be assigned. Tamara, any insight on this? Yeah, I mean, it ties into a little bit the question we were dealing with right before our prior break, which is, you know, do we advise in terms of getting updated medical? Do we let the insurer access that medical directly from your own doctors? And I think it ties into this idea of demonstrating ongoing total disability and where the point people are, how aggressive that's going to be with one adjuster versus another. And again, tied to whether or not you know, you're in the own occupation phase or any occupation. I think where it lands in my mind is just a little bit of all of the above. So in other words, if you are proceeding through a disability claim, I think the starting point is always going to be getting that medical support from your doctor initially to at least apply. 
I think that's a good time to have a conversation with your doctor that you will likely require ongoing support from him or her and any other treatment pro- providers, frankly, to ensure that if if the insurer is reaching out to the doctor directly for an update or a specific report or some other information to support the disability claim, that the doctor and all their staff, by the way, are aware that this is something that's really important to be responsive to and to provide comprehensive medical information because it is directly tied to continuing to receive ongoing disability benefits. Not always. Sometimes there are other issues at play, and certainly we've talked about you know the toolkit of adjusters having lots of different ways that they're going to look at your claim and, frankly, try and find ways to bring it to a close. But if we're strictly talking about medical updates and where, where does that information flow from, I think it's really, really important that your medical team are aware that it may be a request coming from you, it could be a request coming directly from the insurer. Either way, it's an important piece for adjusters to have because they are box checkers and they are not going to release that disability benefit month over month if they haven't satisfied that box in their little claims adjudication book that says, yep, we've got updated medical information. Back to you guys. All righty. Get to uh, Schofield. That is the uh, the name we got here for this email. Guy says, hey, James, hey, Tamar, I've been off on disability for over the two-year mark. Recently, my case manager was terminated from their position and a replacement has taken over for about a month. Will my benefits automatically be cut off with a new person? So far, the insurer has made no attempt at contacting me. Pay is supposed to be coming in this week, but I'm thinking not. What is the usual result when this happens? Thanks in advance. I'm seeing a theme here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing a theme. So change an adjuster, what does that mean? And and you know, I think what's most troubling and, and you know, Schofield's email is right on point. Like what does happen if there's an adjuster that's changed, you know? There's no hard and fast rules. In fact, James and I can tell you that we've asked adjusters at Discoveries, like, do you guys have like a manual, like a training manual? Do you have like a step-by-step guide? What happens when you pick up a new claims file, like things that you're supposed to do? And most adjusters will tell you, no. We, we had a shadowing for one or two weeks from another adjuster who, who was already on the job, and that was it. And then we started to do claims handling. And so because there is no real guidelines or training manual or policies or deadlines internally with these insurers, you get a lot of uncertainty, unfortunately, with claimants trying to navigate all of this. And I think what concerns me is that there's no real right or wrong answer for Schofield's email. Like, I can't assure him that his claims, uh, his benefits are going to continue. I can't assure him that a new adjuster is going to be more or less responsive. I think at the end of the day, the hope is those benefits continue. You know, silence is not necessarily a bad thing with an adjuster if that benefit is being paid month over month, but there's no guarantee one way or another. And so look, if you've got questions about your claim, it's absolutely fair for you to contact the insurer and get that information. You know, they've got a general, you know, customer service line like any other company. You can reference your claim number and you hope that you'll get someone who's going to be able to be responsive as to what's happening. I think that that becomes much more problematic, though, if the benefit is not being paid. That's where I have a real issue with this shell game sometimes with some insurers with, you know, nine different adjusters that that people have to go through for the adjudication of their claim. And look, in circumstances like that, James and I are all over it. You know, it is a problem for the insurers. They know it. There's usually dollars associated with those issues with adjudication at the end of the day. But what I get frustrated by is that people have to go through that process before they get resolution. Hey, this is what we're here for, I suppose. James, what do you think, pal? I think I could not possibly have said it better than Tamar just did. And 
we probably don't have enough time to even try before the break. <laughs> so with that, we're going to get back over to mydisabilityquestions.com after the break. So how about that? You can send one any uh, anytime, guys. We've still got plenty of time to give us a call. And many open lines on the phones here live on air, 416-872-1010 or text 71010 as well. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Welcome back. It is one fifty, and uh, you still got a uh, still got some time. Still got a few minutes. If uh, you got the hankering to give us a call, here's how you do it: four one six eight seven two ten ten. Or if you prefer the text route, we can uh, get to some of those seven ten ten. Other than that, plain old fashioned email: help at disabilityrights.ca, or uh, that you can use anytime. Same goes for mydisabilityquestions.com. Free and anonymous site there to ask your questions, and we'll get to one from there. That's the next one up. That website says: What does the change of definition mean? Will I automatically be cut off or does my long-term disability company have to help me find a career do they possibly help with school thanks all right so we're doing disability 101 yes but it's a good time to do it so change of definition this is a topic that comes up quite frequently we often shorten that to cod change of definition what that is is a particular date where the definition used to determine whether or not you are entitled to benefits changes hence change of definition usually that date is going to be two years from the date when you first start getting benefits so not two years from the date where you start your medical leave but two years from when you start getting benefits usually there is a gap of sometimes three, sometimes four times, sometimes even six months from when you start your leave until when your long-term disability benefits start. Oftentimes you might have short-term disability in between. But when those benefits start, it's typically going to be two years when that, cha- when that definition changes, the change of definition date. During the first period of time before that change of definition date, the test is whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation. After the date, the test becomes whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. So it does become a more difficult test after two years, but I don't think it's nearly as as difficult as the insurers like to make it out. They typically like to look at it as though this is entirely new and different and all of a sudden you're almost certainly going to be cut off. Sometimes even implying that you really only have your benefits for two years because it's a change of definition and after two years you're almost certainly going to be denied. That is rarely the case. It is, you know, I, There are circumstances where that might be true. Somebody who has a significant amount of education and has a job that is largely physical and because of that uh, because of an injury a physical injury they're not able to continue so certainly during those two years they're going to get their benefits but after the two years they're likely going to be they're not they're likely going to be qualified for some other job because of their education that would be a scenario where the test would be very difficult to pass after two years but that's unusual in most cases at the two-year mark it is still likely that you're going to continue to qualify for benefits and the reason is because that change of definition also imports another term that is often not explicitly spelled out in the policy but whenever it's looked at by the courts they always say no no you also have to show this so what am i talking about i'm talking about a concept called commensurate income Mm -hmm. 
So at that two-year mark, at that change of definition, if the insurer says, okay, well, even though you couldn't do your own occupation, here's this other job that you can do, they still have to show that that other job is going to pay you commensurate income. What is commensurate income? Well, sometimes it's defined in the policy itself. I'd say about a third of the time, the policy will actually spell out that after two years, the job that they say you can do has to pay you at least X percent of what you had been making before. And I've seen X be 50%, I've seen it be 75 and anywhere in between. But more often than not, the policy won't spell out what the commensurate income is. And when that happens, the courts have typically found that it's usually somewhere around 60% to two-thirds, 60 to 67%. Usually a good rule of thumb is if you are able to earn an income that will essentially replace the benefits that you would be entitled to, that's going to satisfy the commensurate income test. More often than not, that will be true. So that's change of definition. Now, the, the question has a few other parts to it. One is, do does the insurance company have to help you find a career? Well, no, they don't have to help you find a career. They will have to identify another occupation that you're capable of doing, but they don't necessarily have to do anything to assist you with doing that. Oftentimes, insurance companies will have programs that at least nominally help you, and sometimes it will provide legitimate benefits to you. Um, there's also a question here about, will they help you with school? Sometimes, yes, but keep in mind, the insurers will do this only in so far as they are either specifically required to by the policy or to the extent that they think it's going to be helpful to them. So there are situations where someone probably wouldn't qualify for another job because they don't have enough training, but they have a background that suggests that with a little bit more training or education, they probably could qualify for something else. In those situations, smart insurance companies will offer that training to their insured well before the change of definition so that by the time they get to the change of definition, there's going to be a basis for them to justify. And if they've offered that to you and you've turned it down, the insurer probably has a good argument for saying that you're not entitled to benefits anymore because you refused this you know, schooling or, or course or whatever it was that would have qualified you for a job that would have meant that you're no longer entitled to benefits. So that's the change of definition in what is probably a little bit more than a nutshell. Anything you want to add to that, Tamar? Well, I want to just reference one thing, which is we do have a really helpful website, ltdfaq.ca, that has a series of very simple memos. And one of them talks about frequently used terms in disability, uh, benefits, disability litigation. And so change definition is on there. Any occupation, own occupation, lots of these terms are covered in one of those memos. So if people are listening and they're not sure, look, is there any additional resources? That's a really good place to go, ltdfaq.ca. The other thing I was going to add was this idea of retraining. You know, I have seen many clients and consults uh, with individuals who said, well, but the insurer promised me that they were going to do this. They were going to offer me some education and training. And I was banking on that. And then all of a sudden they cut me off. They never offered it to me. And now what? I actually have an ongoing legal claim like this. And so, look, I mean, not any, these policies are not similar when it comes to those kinds of commitments, but certainly if the insurer has made the commitment and then sort of essentially pulls a rug from under you and doesn't follow through with the commitment for retraining at the any occupation stage of the policy, that's a problem. 
It's a huge problem for the disability insurer. So please remain mindful of that in the context of what we're talking about here is that you do have rights. It is driven by the policy, but it also means that if the insurer is making commitments to you that they then don't follow through with, that could be absolutely a problem and a basis for a legal claim. Guys, you're always awesome. And thank you for any contributions through email and mydisabilityquestions.com. You can continue using both of those now that we're off air in about a minute here. And uh, beyond that, you can always contact James and Tamar at 1-855-821-5900. And yeah, always check out ltdfaq.ca as well. And again, help at disabilityrights.ca. We will catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. 